Chapter 17 of The Homesteader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Hu. The Homesteader by Oscar Michaud. Epoch the Second, The Coward. Hello, Jean, cried a friend of his at Column some days later as he was leading his horses into the livery barn, after loading the coal he was hauling to the men who were breaking prairie on his sister's claim with a steam tractor. Were those your folks I seen driving into town a while ago? My folks? Yeah, three of them, a man and two women. One of the ladies appears to be sick. Oh, he echoed, and before he could or would have answered in his sudden surprise, the other passed on. It was some moments before he recovered from the shock the other's words had given him. He knew without stopping to think that the ones referred to were the Reverend, Ethel, and his wife. He had written his wife a few days before that he would be home the following Sunday, and when he would be caught up in his hauling sufficiently and could spend a few days there. So he moves without my consent or bid, he breathed, and for a time he was listless from the feeling that overcame him. He attended to his horses, mechanically, had supper, and went to verify what he had heard. He had little difficulty in doing so, for the town was small, but that night happened to be full of people, and the reverend had found some difficulty in securing lodging. The day had not been a beautiful one by any means. It was in early April, and the month had borrowed one of the dreary days of the previous month. Light snow had fallen, which, along toward evening, had turned into a dismal sleep. A bad day, to say the least, to be out and a sick person of all things. He went directly to the preacher when he saw him. He was aroused, and the insults he had suffered did not make him pleasant. Now look here, Reverend McCarthy, he said, and his tone revealed his feelings. What kind of a stunt are you pulling off with my wife? And he blocked his way where they stood upon the sidewalk. Now, now, my son. Oh, don't sun me, said the other impatiently. You and I might as well come to an understanding right here tonight as any other time. We are not friends, and you know it. We have never since we have known each other and been in accord. Not since we met, yes, 22 years ago. Oh, you remember it. The other started guiltily when Jean referred to his youth. You remember how my mother licked me for letting Miss Selb help me upon her lap and fed me, thereby disturbing your illegitimate flirtation. The other's pious face darkened, but it was not his nature to meet and argue openly as men shouldn't do. Always his counter was subtle. So while Jean Baptist was in the mood to come to an understanding, to admit frankly to the other the enemies they were, the elder permitted a womanish smile to spread over his face and patted the other on the back, saying, Now, now, Jean, you are my daughter's husband, and it is no time or place to carry on like this. The girl lay sick over here, and if you would be a husband, you would go over to her. Now let's dispense with such things as you refer to and go forth to the indisposed. He appeared more godly now than he had ever. Distrust was in the face of Baptist. He knew the preacher was not sincere, but his wife, the girl he had married, lay ill. He suspicioned that the elder had intended stealing her away without his knowledge, he knew, moreover, that all his effective tenderness was subtle, but he hushed the harsh words that were on his tongue to say and followed the other. Yes, my children, his pious face, almost unable to veil the evil behind the mask. Here we are together, he said, when he entered the room followed by Baptist. Orlaine was in the bed and made no effort to greet her husband, while Ethel sat sulkily in a chair nearby and kept her mouth closed. Jean went to the bed and sat by his wife and regarded her meditatively. She did not seem to recognize him, and he made no effort to arouse her to express her thoughts, which seemed to come and go. 
He was lost in thoughts, strange and sinister. Verily, his life was in a turmoil. The life he had come into through his marriage had revived so many old and unpleasant memories that he had forgotten, until he was in a sort of daze. He had virtually run away from those parts wherein he had first seen the light of day, to escape the effect of dull indolence. The penurious evil that seemed to have gripped the populace, especially a great portion of his race. In the years Jean Baptiste had spent in the West, he had been able to follow, unhampered, his convictions. But now the Reverend's presence seemed to have brought all this back. In a conversation one day with that other, he had occasion to mention the late James J. Hill in the eulogy of the Northwest and was surprised to find, and had the Reverend admit, that he had never even heard of him. Indeed, what the elder knew about the big things in life would have filled a very small book, but when it came to the virtues of the women in the churches over which he presided, he knew everything, and whenever they had become agreeable in any way, it was sure to end with the reverend relating instance regarding the social and moral conduct of the women in the churches over which he presided. Moreover, the elder sought, in his subtle manner, to dig into the past life of members of the Baptist family, of what any had committed that could be used as a measure for gossip. And this night, as they sat over Jean's wife, whose sentiment and convictions had been crushed, the elder attempted to dwell on the subject again. Yes, when your older sister taught in Murraysboro, and got herself talked about because she drew a revolver on Professor Alexander, that was certainly too bad. Looks as if she was able to take care of herself, suggested Baptist, deciding to counter the old rascal at his own game. But that's what I'm trying to show you, and you could see it if you wasn't inclined to be so hard-headed argued the elder. We'll leave personalities out of it, if you please, said Baptist, coloring. Oh, but if your sister had had protection, such a deplorable incident would not have happened. Now, for instance, argued the elder, my girls have never had their good names embarrassed with such incidents. Oh, they haven't, cried Baptist, all patience gone. Then what about their half-brother in East St. Louis, eh? And the other one who died was stabbed to death. Those were yours and you were never married to their mother. The other's face became terrible. The expression upon his face was dreadful to behold. He started to rise, but Baptist was not through. He was thoroughly aroused now, and all he had stood from this arch-sinner had come back to him. Therefore, before the other could deny or do anything, said he, Oh, you needn't try to become so upset over it. Your morals are common knowledge to all the people of Illinois and elsewhere. And let me tell you, you can, as you have in your family, force those who know it and condemn it to keep quiet by making yourself so disagreeable that they will honey you up to get along with you. But it is not because they, or all those who know you, are not aware of it. That's your reputation, and some day you are going to suffer for it. You deliberately make people miserable to satisfy your infernal vanity. You desire to be looked upon and called great. Now right here you are, bent upon crucifying your own daughter's happiness just because I haven't tickled your rotten vanity and lied. He rose now and pointed a threatening finger at the other. You are out to injure me, and you are taking advantage of your own child's position as my wife to do so. I'm going to let you go ahead. Orlane's a good girl, but she's weak like the mother that you have abused for 30 years. But remember this, N.J. McCarthy, and I've called you reverend for the last time. The evil that you do unto others will some day be done unto you and will drag your ornery heart in its own blood. Mark my words. In the next instant, he was gone. The other looked after him uneasily. The truth had come so forcibly, so impulsively, so abruptly, that it had for the time overcome his cunningness, 
but only for a moment after the other had disappeared was he so. He regained his usual composure soon enough, and he turned to the sick woman for succor. To her whom he was dragging down to the gutter of misery for his own self-aggrandizement. Did you hear how he abused your father? he cried, the tears from his piggish eyes falling on her cheeks. She reached and stroked his white hair and mumbled weak words. Oh, I never thought it would come to this, be brought to this through the daughter that I have loved so much. Oh, poor me, your poor old father. Whereupon he wept bitterly. You see, you see, cried Ethel, who had risen and stood over her, pointing her finger to Orlane as she lay upon the bed. This is what comes of marrying that man. I tried, oh, I tried so hard to have you see that no good can come of it, no good at all. The other sighed. She was too weak from mortification to reply in the affirmative or the negative. I tried, and I tried to have you desist, but you would. When I had at last gotten you to quit him, and you swore you had, no sooner did he come and place his arm about you and whisper fool things in your ear, than did you butt up and consent to this. This, this do you hear? This that has brought your poor father to that. And she stopped to point to where that one lay stretched across the bed, sobbing. That night was one long, miserable, quarrelsome night. Ethel and the elder wore themselves out abusing Baptiste, and the long-torn morning all fell into a troubled sleep. Baptiste met them the next morning as they came from the rooms, and helped his wife across the street to a restaurant. When they had finished the meal, he said to her as they came from the restaurant, Now, dear, I'll step into the bank here and get you some money. No, 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 Jean, she said quickly, cutting him off before he completed what he had started to say. Well, and he started toward the bank again as if he had not understood her. No, 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 Jean, she repeated, and caught his arm nervously. No, don't. But you are going away, dear, and will surely need money, he insisted. Yes, but Jean, Jean, I have money. You have money, repeated the other uncomprehendingly. But how came you with money, that much money? I, I had a check cashed. That is, Papa had one cashed for me. Oh, so that was it. Hmm. Your father had it cashed for you. He understood then, and his suspicion that the elder had intended taking her to Chicago without letting him know it was confirmed. They walked down the street towards the depot, and while she held nervously to his arm, his mind was concerned with his thoughts. It occurred to him that he should take his wife back to the claim right then. He felt that if she went to Chicago, there would be trouble. He began slowly to appreciate that in dealing with Reverend McCarthy, he was not dealing with a man, nor a near man. He was not dealing with a mere liar or a thief even. He was dealing with the lowest of all reptiles, a snake. Then why did not he, Jean Baptiste, act? Perhaps if he had, we should never have had this story to tell. Jean Baptiste did not act. He decided to let her go. Beyond that, he had no decision. It seemed that his mind would not work beyond the immediate present. Soon she heard him as she clung to his arm, allowing her body to rest against his shoulder. How much for, Arlen? Two, two hundred dollars. Why, two hundred dollars, he cried. Why, Arlene, what has come over you? She burst into tears then and clung appealingly to him, and in that moment she was again his God-given mate. Besides, he went on, I haven't such an amount in the bank even. He looked up. A half a block in their lead walked Reverend McCarthy, carrying the luggage. Papa, Papa, called Orlane at the top of her voice. Papa, she called again and again, until she fell into a fit of coughing. He halted and was uneasy. Baptiste could see. They came up to him. Orlaine was running despite her husband's effort to hold her back. 
Papa, Papa, my God, give Jean back that money. Give it back, I say. Oh, I didn't want to do this. Oh, I didn't want to. It was you who had me sign that check. You, you, you. She was overcome then and fell into a swoon in her husband's arms. He stood firmly, bravely, then like the rock of Gibraltar. His face was very hard. It was firm. His eyes spoke. It told the one before him the truth, the truth that was. And as the other ran his hand to his inside vest pocket and drew forth the money, he kept saying in a low, cowardly voice, It was her. It was her. She did it. She did it. Baptiste took the money. He looked at it. He took $50 from it and handed the amount to the other. He spoke then, in a voice that was singularly dry. I will not keep her from going. She can go, but you know I ought not let her. They carried her to where the car stood and made her comfortable when once inside. She opened her eyes when he was about to leave upon hearing the conductor's call. She looked up into his eyes. He bent and kissed her. She looked after him as he turned and called, Jean. Yes, Erlaine? Goodbye. He stood on the platform of the small western station as the train pulled down the track. A few moments later, it disappeared from view, and she was gone. End of chapter 17, The Coward